Welcome back to the Perpetual Wealth Podcast, a show for clients of Paradigm Life. This season, we're empowering you to take control of your financial future using the core principles of the Perpetual Wealth Strategy. Now, before we dive in, a quick but essential disclaimer. While this podcast is primarily for our valued clients at Paradigm Life, it's open to anyone interested in enhancing their financial knowledge. However, please remember that our information should not be taken as a direct tax, legal, or financial advice. We strongly recommend consulting with a wealth strategist at Paradigm Life or your financial team before making any decisions based on our discussions. Today, we continue our journey into cash flow, protection, and wealth building, the foundational principles of the perpetual wealth strategy. Let's dive in and explore how to optimize your wealth and achieve financial independence. Your journey continues now. Hey everyone, welcome back to the final segment of our three-part series on real estate. This one, we're gonna be talking about real estate investment on uh, the title of the episode is investment unearth unlocking the potential of real estate you like the pun i do <laughs> i uh <laughs> yes i like the pun <laughs> all right so let's let's get into it right obviously we you know we met at a uh investment conference right we've been around real estate investment for quite some time uh you know i was in, involved in real estate and had some very uh, enlightening moments and experiences during 2008-2009 uh, and learn from those lessons. But right now, obviously, we're in a period of you know, correction. And so there's things happening right now that people weren't, uh, that most people weren't anticipating, right? So these cycles of real estate investment, I know that you've invested a ton in real estate and have some, has had some really great successes, but also some really valuable lessons. Uh, so let's, uh, let's get into it. But let's first recap episode one and two right? Stacking the principles of those episodes uh, so that we can hit the ground running with this one. Yeah. So, you know, real estate is a big decision. You know, it, it is one that is illiquid. You can't get out of it quickly. If you, and when you do make the transition of going into real estate and then out of real estate, it can be expensive. There's, there's uh, typically broker fees and sales charges and, and there could be tax impacts of, of doing so. So it's not something you want to, it's not a decision you want to make with uh, too little knowledge. Uh, it can be expensive with respect to gaining experience the hard way, which is what I think you said, a very valuable lesson. That's a way of saying I lost a lot of money. Uh, and, and, but it also helped me understand the lesson and make a lot of money in the future after that. So I love the investment side of real estate. It shares a lot to the uh, primary residence side of real estate. I mean, it's the same asset uh, after all. Uh, and then fundamentally, what we talked about initially about why real estate, why why is real property that important? I mean, it's fundamental to freedom and to capitalism and being able to do what you want with your family, which I call agency. Uh, it, it's fundamental to what we try to help clients do and how I think you can live your best life is having control, ownership of real property. And the way you can really, really accelerate it is through this last seg segment, which is investment side. Yep, and, I, and we live in you know, a, a country, right? Despite, you know, every all people have are infallible, you know, and if there's people involved, there's going to be some fallibility. But looking at really where we live compared to other nations, right, where property laws are uh, muddy, where title laws and, and 
uh, title proof and the legal system, right, essentially has property taken away, whether it's the government taken away or somebody else making a false claim. Like we live in a society where, wow, real estate ownership is so prevalent, but also there's so much certainty around it, okay, when it comes to kind of a, a legal uh, side of things. However, the fallibility that really puts real estate into, uh, obviously, don't do that or do that or success or failure, it really comes down to the individual, the individual investor. Uh, and we've found that education is huge. Education allows you to have more control, more influence. It reduces risk. Uh, at the same time, regardless of how much education you have, okay, life still happens. And so there's other ways in which you kind of protect for the anomalies, uh, other ways that you protect for downturns in the economy, um, et cetera, et cetera. So we're going to get into uh, a lot of that, uh, a lot of that today, because the point in those, that first episode was really to show that there's so much demand for the different types of property that exist, the different types of real estate, okay, and you being able to own that and be the supplier of real estate, okay, there's margin. And it's not just residential real estate renting out to, you know, and being a, a, a landlord, right? Look at Airbnb, right? Airbnb really revolutionized how people could buy a residential property and potentially have higher income than if they rented it. Uh, on a longer term lease, but then COVID happened, right? And that didn't because that wasn't possible for a lot of people, right? Because they relied on nightly rentals and people weren't traveling because of COVID. Anyway, so there's, there's lots of different nuances, but the idea of real estate is there is high demand. You can be the supplier of that demand and there's always going to be margin if you do it the right way. Getting into a residential real estate, right? When it comes to a primary residence, even though mortgage types are the same, okay, properties kind of are the same how the property is used, how you analyze, and how you treat the acquisition, it, you need to take some other things into consideration. So maybe we, uh, we can start with that. Yeah, so first thing you gotta realize is the differences between primary residence and, and investment real estate. Like there are some common, there are definitely commonalities, right? And those are the things that make it a good investment. Uh, you know, it is a thing of universal need. Everyone needs it. That's why people will pay you to rent it from you because they actually need that thing, right? They may skip their car payment and get that repossessed, but they will, it will be the last thing they skip, uh, deciding to sleep outside on the ground, right? So they will pay for rent. And so that makes it something, it makes it a, an investment that you have that you can count on, right? It's, there's no certainty that the Chick-fil-A that you invested in uh, is always going to pay you, but it's more likely that the rental property will continue to pay me. Somebody will pay you. Maybe not your current resident but, or your current tenant, but somebody will pay you. So that's the, that's the good side. What you should think about real estate being different is that it's not an, it should not be an emotional decision. And so many people make that, make that mistake. They think, well, I had a good experience owning my own property, so I'm going to you know, use that same experience, and that's all the knowledge I'm going to gain when I go buy a rental property. And so we go get the cutest rental property, or we go uh, get one that you know, somebody said was a fun place to live. Uh, or we turn our primary residence and we decide to go move into something else and we turn that into a rental just because we had a good experience there. And so it's this emotional side that we're trying to translate into the financial side. So you should really look at investment, even if it was your last primary residence. Look at it from a purely uh, unemotional math side of it to see does this make sense or not make sense. And this will be part of the tutorials that we're going to be doing as an extension of, uh, of this series. Okay, but in the end... Human beings are creatures of habit, and if we've done something one way, we'll typically apply certain lessons maybe in a different context. And so if you've purchased a house and have never purchased a rental property, you're going to take the elements that you use to, to purchase the house, whether it's 
you know, the, the toilets that you want or the color on the, on the walls or uh, the yard and the landscaping, uh, the, wind, the types of windows. I mean, there's so many different elements, but if you apply that, those, same, uh, those same decisions to a rental property, you're going to negative, negatively impact uh, the success of that property. Because in the end, when it comes to investment, right, there are choices in investment. And when you invest in one thing, Okay, you give up uh, your ability to invest in an alternative. So let's say in this case, it's you know the stock market versus uh, investment real estate. Okay, looking at that, obviously the reason to choose real estate over the stock market. Okay, most most of the time, um, actually I'll strip that out. I would say let's just use it as comparison. But let's say that you're not an astute stock market investor and you're getting into real estate. In the stock market, obviously, expertise is really where people get gains. Within real estate, I feel that there are more gains if you do it the right way, and it doesn't require as much education as you would need to properly navigate the market. So as you get into real estate, okay, you're doing it to get a return. You could have been in the market and get a return, okay, but now you're choosing to get into real estate. So if you're buying you know, $500 toilets, right, and you're putting in these amazing glass showers and these really fancy handles on doors in a C type of neighborhood, okay, that is not a wise investment, okay? What you're trying to do is get in, right, where you're providing a nice place for somebody to live, but you're doing it in the most efficient way possible. You're providing, you're supplying, right, to their demand. They're demanding a place to live with certain criteria. So getting into it the most efficient way possible allows you for allows you to have the most optimal returns. Does that make sense? Would you add to that? Yeah, I would say that you know compare. I completely agree, and and I would say that um, with real estate, you know, th there's a phrase in the real estate world that time turns every horrible deal. Uh, it time will make you look like even with your worst deal a genius, right? You look like a genius eventually with real estate because of appreciation and because of the universal need of the asset. You can kind of not just wait your way out of it, but you can work your way out of a bad decision. If you buy way above market 20 years from now, that's going to be irrelevant, correct. right? Yep. But it's just take, it may take a while to get there. Um, you know, and so real estate compared to another one, you, you brought up some great points there. Um, I would say that uh, unlike uh, a point and click kind of asset where, you know, I'm, I decided to buy a share of Apple stock and some guy in Ethiopia sold me that share, you know, not that I know that, but you know, the exchange happened on what's called a perfect, mar a perfect uh, exchange or a perfect uh, market, meaning that it was bought and sold at that moment by uh, anybody across the globe at the same rate. I could, just because I know the CEO of Apple, I didn't get a better deal than somebody else. But real estate, it, for many reasons, is really an inefficient market, which it can be to your advantage, right? So um, you can uh, add all, first of all, there's, a lot of different ways in which you make money in real estate. It's a multi-dimensional asset. So I use this acronym just so I can remember all the aspects of it, that real estate's an ideal investment. And so the, the letter or the word ideal is an acronym for you can get cash flow or income from it. You can get deductions. And there's one huge one is called depreciation where you get to pretend like its value goes to zero over a few years and take that as a tax deduction. Um, you're building equity, tenants paying off your mortgage. It's going up in value because of appreciation and inflation. And you also you have the mortgage. It, you right? also have a mortgage, which you obviously can use to acquire that asset. Yep. So right? leverage so, on yep. your dollars. So acquisition costs are much less than if you were to just to buy an asset without leverage. Right, right. And so when you add up all those different features, it can often outperform what a person with the same education level could do in a more efficient market like, like the uh, stock market. All right. So getting into, again, let's talk about like first in investment property. Like where do you see the, the, 
most, uh, the biggest challenges people face, both from like maybe pulling the trigger, then to actually uh, buying it the right way and getting the returns that they were anticipating? Well, one of them is that kind of emotional buying. Like, mm -hmm. I wouldn't live there. That's not the point, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> you know, and so, uh, so one is, is it's emotional on that. It's also emotional from the perspective that uh, the first time you're out there, you're going to feel like the Lone Ranger. Listen, if your friends were doing it, um, you'd probably already be doing it, and, and you wouldn't feel unusual. But most of, the case, most of the time, we are standing out from our group of friends and people that we know, and we're doing something that they think is crazy. Like renting, your, renting a property or being a rental property owner, 90-plus percent of the people out there, I think, would say, oh, you mean like you used to live in the house and you're renting it out to somebody else, right? So to just intentionally go out there and buy an asset for the purpose of renting it, especially if it's not where you live, that's way out there on the, on the fringes of where you're going to find other people. So you're going to feel like a lone ranger. You're going to feel a little bit weird about it. Then there's the aspect of finding out what is a good fit for your goals, your financial goals, like what kind of real estate. So Patrick, like just, you know, run us through a quick, you know, here's a few different kinds of real estate. I mean, there's a lot. Sure. Right? And, and I would say, you know, the first one, which is, you know, let's say it's a house you used to live in, right? So it's the residential idea. I think some, some people by default get into rentals, like Carlos Boozer, right? Mm -hmm. Carlos Boozer got into rentals, not because he bought his Bel Air mansion to life, rent. Life right? happened. Just life <laughs> happened, right? Um, so getting into it, he saw some benefit. And I don't know what his real estate, if he's done uh, any more uh, outside of that. Okay, but that's typically where people start, right? Is in that residential residential zone because in the residential zone, that's where the highest demand is. Mm -hmm. Okay, especially if we were to look at like the median income of people, like right in the center, there's the most amount of people demanding a place to live, right? So you have to understand that there is you minimize risk just by that alone. Choosing to buy a rental property uh, with the understanding that there's a lot of people that are going to demand it, right. To live there. So you won't necessarily have gaps in, uh, in rental income, right. Or, um, yeah, or tenants, right. So right. that's the yeah. first thing. Then obviously you start to go up from there. You have multi-unit, mm -hmm. right. Uh, which is, let's say just to four units, which is still considered residential. Then beyond that, you get into multi, uh, multi-family. This is the kind of the commercial, uh, commercial zone. Then you get into like multi-hundred complexes of multifamily. Mm -hmm. Then you get into, you know, the industrial, you have uh, residential, you have uh, retail, you have mixed use, uh, you have land, you have farm, you know, farmland. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can't remember what other, we made a big list of, big <laughs> list of them. Uh, but yeah, you have, you know, the industrial areas as well. So you have lots of different types of real estate. And again, the same principles apply, which is there's, is there a demand? If there is a demand, can you supply it right? With a good margin. Yeah, exactly. And each of them have, have their advantages. So for example, a lot of people will start off with single family homes because they understand it. They've interacted with that, you know, with their own house or at least renting something. And it has some advantages just other than just being familiar with it and being kind of an easy first step. You can get tremendous loans for single family homes. And those are available for uh, the large multifamily too, but there's this middle ground after you get uh, like a four unit, if you go beyond that, like a five unit building, most people have no idea how to get good loans there. And in, in fact, in a lot of cases, there aren't great loans there because it's just kind of redheaded stepchild. It's there's not, not much it's demand. Not, right. Again, you want to follow where the demand is because banking follows demand as well. Yeah. And so one of the beautiful things about single family homes is that you have lots of exit strategies, right? If you, if you go into it with a long-term yeah. rental, or a long-term renter in mind, a one-year kind of renter, and you, you realize, um, gosh, it's not a great, uh, it's not a great thing. Then maybe you can sell it to the person who's renting it. You're not going to sell a fourplex to the guy renting it in most cases, right? It's another investor. Um, you could uh, turn it into a short-term rental. 
or you could just sell it on the open market to anybody who thinks it's a cute little house. You can move into it, right? So there's a lot of different options there. Um, on the other side of the spectrum, let's say you have a 200, built or 200 unit uh, apartment building you're looking at. There's a lot of value there too, and the main thing is scale. Like you can have, you know, I'm paying 10% for every single family home I have, and the guy's gotta get in his truck to go fix the faucet. But if I have a 200 uh, unit building, I have on-site property management and they're handling a lot of the challenges and, and I can have enough scale, I can hire That's economies guy, of scale, yep. right? And then uh, for, for example, re, um, industrial as an example, or retail. It's something that uh, typically is called a triple net lease, which is just amazing if you've ever had a single family home that you get calls on, right? They're, in, they're uh, in, uh, required to handle most of the expenses, the, the uh, taxes, the uh, insurance, they have to do the upgrades, they um, are in charge of most of the repairs. And so that's a huge weight off your back, right? So a lot of times people who are real estate investing will actually go through seasons in their life. They'll be the one to four family rental person and they scale up to apartment buildings and then they don't like the phone calls and they go into like buying a Walgreens, which is triple net lease and they just get paychecks in the mail. And then they're like, gosh, I don't even wanna be um, subjected to the ups and downs of the market and the retail. Uh, I'm just going to transition that stuff into raw land and pass that on to my kids, right? So there's sometimes there's seasons of life, but sometimes there's people. I have a great friend where I live down in Florida. He's been doing single-family homes in his local town for like 50 years, and he's got a ton of them, and he loves doing it. And so, you know, it's really it's somewhat about tying your, um, your kind of personality to the asset. But I would say in, in general, people like to shift through seasons as they go through real estate ownership. And then there's the whole, like, not even, uh, you know, there's kind of the ancillary or the side uh, aspect to it where you can be a hard money lender or you can be a, a remodeler. You know, you can have an actual active business associated with it. Yep. So, so one, one thing that's interesting here, I, I think is you, you sometimes people by default get into uh, investment real estate right through a single family, single family home. And like we talked about before, because mortgage financing is easy, relatively low down payment. Uh, all based on credit score, not based on the property. Uh, and, you know, there's high demand there. It puts people in this like state of like, okay, I want another one. I want another one. And then they start to graduate, right, as they accumulate. At the same time, just as much as uh, there's downsides to taking the approach you use to buying a personal residence and applying that to an investment property, what starts to happen is residential investment property theory, acquiring that, okay, and then applying that same theory to industrial or commercial, right, or hard money, okay, it, there are other factors at play that actually increase risk, okay? So you gotta look at, again, as you graduate into more property, as you graduate into different types of property, uh, the risk goes up unless you have more control and control comes from uh, education and experience. Right. So maybe uh, talk. I don't know. I know you've worked a lot with real estate investors mm -hmm. and we have a lot of clients mm -hmm. who are, are real estate investors. Hey, where, where do you see uh, a lot of the breakdown when it comes to people making bad investment choices in real estate? It's not understanding the asset class that they're in is the primary one. So not having the education, not having uh, somebody who can be a mentor, can serve as a mentor that they can ask questions to. So it's kind of learning everything through the school of hard knocks. And then not having set up enough reserves and protection for that asset. So I have a client who uh, is, is just doing amazingly well and has been for decades in downtown Annapolis, Maryland. And, uh, and it's retail. And, and so 
you know, he looks like a genius when everything's rented up and paying because he's got 10 year long leases and he never has to do anything. And again, it's that triple net stuff. So, so he doesn't have to really pay much attention to anything. He's just like, yep, I own that one and I own that one. But you know, in times of recession, he may go, um, you know, six, eight, 10 months with nothing rented or maybe one building rented. And then all of a sudden he's going from huge positive cash flow to just bleeding negative cash flow. And so has he set himself up for the ability to, you know, stave that off? And essentially in that kind of environment, it's gotta be a lot of cash sitting on the sidelines. So again, it kind of gets back to hierarchy of wealth. And as you transition or you shift from one kind of, of investment real estate ownership to another one, you have to first make sure, am I ready to do that? Am I prepared to do that uh, new kind of investment? Do I understand enough and have I set my life up to be, my financial life up to be successful at it? So I'm gonna add one other thing to asset class, right? Because I, I feel as you, when you're in residential, it's very, it's more simple to uh, control it by yourself, right? Maybe if yeah. a property manager as a kind of an extension of you, but when you start to get into, I would say, multifamily, uh, industrial, land development, hard money, there are other people involved. Yeah. Okay. And, and my, again, this is just my heuristic, but when, I, when other people are involved, I have recognized that all people are fallible. Therefore, they are fallible. Not to take anything away from their expertise or whatever, but increased risk is associated with increased people involved. And I'll give you know, an example, a very sobering example. Uh, this was back, you know, right during the 2008, 2009. Uh, but I just had an opportunity to be part of a land development uh, in Branson, Missouri. And I had to get a loan. And I qualified for a loan. And the, the, uh, essentially, the developer took all the loan proceeds and, you know, and disappeared. disappeared yeah. Right? But I was on the hook for the loan. Mm -hmm. And so I got sued um, by the mortgage lender who was taken over by FDIC. And the whole thing was a sham, right? They were being investigated or whatever. And... Uh, they sued me and were going to come after all of my assets. Okay, and there's a couple other people that I knew actually went bankrupt because they, um, right, they, they got sued. And because they were being sued from a, uh, a recourse state, right, which means that each state has these recourse or non-recourse laws, which means if you default on a mortgage and there's a deficiency in the value of the asset, they will come after your personal assets to make up the deficiency. So they sued, you know, they sued all these people to get money. And a lot of people went bankrupt. But I was like, like I was, I was really upset during this uh, period of time. So I uh, did a lot of due diligence, and I just researched, you know, what what I did, why I did it. I read through all the legal paperwork, and I found out that the jurisdiction they were suing from was one state, but the mortgage lending, okay, was done under the contractual laws of another state, and that state had uh, some non-recourse laws after a certain uh, grace period, right, or uh, statute li uh, limitations. So again, I learned a very sobering lesson. I was on the brink of, of like having to go bankrupt with everything, right? And have them garnish wages, right? Because of that poor decision. Yet I was able to find something there that got me off the hook. And I learned an insanely valuable lesson because I was actually able to help a lot of clients from that point forward who were having some hard times and bankruptcy attorneys were saying, just default on your loan, default on everything. And you know, you'll, you'll be fine. But they lived in non-recourse states, and the only asset that was underwater that they had was their real estate, and that's why they were yeah. filing bankruptcy. So it's it's one of those things where like being an astute investor requires understanding at levels deeper than just the supply and demand, okay, or the actual uh, you know asset class. It comes down to understanding you know some the legal side of things. It comes to understanding uh, you know leases uh, as well as asset protection, how to separate. You know, the, any liability associated with your investment from the other assets that you own, right? That's another huge piece. 
But the point I'm trying to make is when other people are involved, you can expect that there are going to be mistakes that are made and you want to try to minimize those mistakes as much as possible, whether it's understanding what you're signing, understanding what you're obligating yourself to, understanding any risk associated with it and ensuring that you're protecting other assets from that. Uh, and I've, it's not just my experiences, but I've learned that from a lot of other people's experiences, mostly clients. Yeah, I agree. And, uh, you know, that, that somewhat had to do with uh, land development, but it was really about uh, the hierarchy of wealth again and the different tiers of hierarchy of wealth. And, and uh, you know, excited to get into that in our next segment. But that, that's really, I think, the big lesson there. The thing I was going to say about the different kinds of real estate and, and development, often people will find themselves in the middle of land development uh, who know nothing about it. And, and they think it's like just some other little unique twist or aspect that they have to learn. And that is not true. Land development is like waking up on Mars <laughs> if you've been living on the Earth. It is a completely different animal. You have to learn a ton of stuff about, um, about uh, relations with city governments, about permitting, about the time that it takes to do one of those things. I mean, just I, I recommend just tripling whatever the estimated time is on, on land development. Do you have the money to be able to extend the loans and things like that for that period? Um, how do you overcome you know, political environment where people just come in and say, no, you shouldn't be able to do this because I'll lose my view or the some striped animal, you know, that you didn't know existed, it lives there. So you just have to be very, very careful when it comes to land development. And, you know, I think people end up with it in, in as simple as situations as, well, I can't find the property that we want to rent. So, hey, look, there's raw land. Let's just build it. Right? It's not that simple <laughs> of putting the sticks down on the land. Well, let's so. get into hierarchy of wealth. I think that's yeah. an important piece uh, because... If you really look at a choice to make an investment, it, we're, we're not here saying that there's a perfect investment, that there's, you put your money into something and it is, it's going to do exactly what you anticipated, you know, gu guaranteed. Obviously, there are some investments that, has a high, that have a higher probability of doing that than others. But in the end, life is going to happen. Life is going to change. The world is going to change. Reality is going to change. And that presents different circumstances for the investment that existed when you made the investment in the first place. Yeah. So when you're taking... Uh, when you're making an investment, there is inherent risk. So what we developed you know, years ago was a way in which you can uh, determine asset allocation okay, based on two primary factors, uh, control and inherent risk. Okay? And we really looked at, okay, what are, what are some tiers associated uh, with control and risk that we could allocate an investment or an asset to? But then we realized, right, that one asset uh, for one person, right, could be much less risky than the same person owning that asset, uh, the, another person owning that same asset. Does that yeah, make sense? Yeah. Right. So the idea is like the hierarchy of wealth is what we uh, call it. And there'll be some uh, references in the show notes uh, that you can visit. But the hierarchy of wealth is just a way to position all of your assets and how they're allocated. We have certain uh, ranges of allocation for tier one, which is a tier that has the highest degree of certainty. Okay. Obviously, there's going to be some lower returns there. The objective of tier one is to get the highest returns for the highest degree of certainty. But then there's tier two, right, which obviously has some higher risk, but likely higher returns. Tier three and then tier four, which are your speculative investments that you can you know, essentially lose everything, but have a potential for gain. When you have this, right, you're able to determine your risk appetite pretty easily. Okay, mm -hmm. What that means is like, let's say you have a lot of money uh, in tier one, in tier two, and you have an opportunity for a tier three investment. Okay, now you know, you know, using the hierarchy of wealth, that okay, maybe uh, I can start to allocate to this tier three, and and uh, if things go well, awesome. If not, then I still have my other tier two and tier one 
right? As a backup, right? Yeah. So I don't go, I don't go bankrupt. But what ends up happening for most people, right, is they start out in investments that they don't understand, don't control, there's zero risk, there's very little liquidity, okay? And it's right at tier three, tier four, right at the top. Highest risk, potential highest returns, but the highest degree of risk and highest degree, you know, especially the probability of, uh, of loss. Yeah. So uh, this is a statement about humans, I guess, but the risk, the risk comes in this hierarchy as you go further up from, so the investment hierarchy tiers are two, three, and four, and four is at the top, right? And as you go up, you take on more risk uh, because you're giving up control and you're giving up insight into what's happening with your money. But the risk is specifically the other humans that are getting involved, right? So as you go higher and higher in the hierarchy of wealth, you're bringing on more people which means that they might be a crook, they might be incompetent, they might be both, they might just be you know, lazy and don't tell you what's going on or inform you. All of those things are risks that are coming in, human nature, other people involved, and between you specifically and your money in this investment. And so I have people ask, for example, hey, this apartment building that most of my money is in, I've invested most of my money in this apartment building. Okay, that, that's not a good start to a conversation, but let's say that that's it. Um, where is it? Is it tier two, three, or four, right? I can't answer the question based on what they just told me right there, right? Like their money's in an apartment building. But what I don't know is what is their interaction level with the apartment building. I have clients who have, you know, I have a client who has a 50 unit apartment building and retired and took over direct ownership ass and control of that asset before they had managers and a bunch of other people. Um, he's in tier two, like that is a directly controlled asset. He's got a lot of insight and control. He has very little risk. There is still risk, like the market could drop, dive or something, um, but, but it's low risk. If instead though, that if he sold that to uh, an individual who was raising money to buy it from him, and I invested in that, now I'm in what's called a tier three syndication. So why do I, am I at more risk? Well, because I'm not there every day, right? And so now the person who's running it may make mistakes. But what if he gets tired of it and says, I don't want this thing anymore, and he sells it to a real estate investment trust, which is a hedge fund, which has pulled together that one and 50 others, and then you see that, and hear a good advertisement about it, and you point and click and buy into that, you're at even more risk. Um, maybe not, I mean, they may do a better job, but the risk is that they don't, because they have a bunch of apartment buildings, and they got a bunch of other stuff they're paying attention to, and so my experience, when I'm that far removed from my money up in tier four, is that it may go well, but if it does, it's luck, right? It's not actions I've taken to get myself there. So that's, I mean, those are the prime, the distinguishing factors, and that is obviously for those who are versed in investment, that's why there's higher returns, right? It's because there's higher degrees of risk. But if you look at, again, tier one returns, tier two returns, and then you get into start, you know, tier three and tier four, you're gonna find, especially using the perpetual wealth strategy, you're gonna find that there has to be a pretty good return that's worth you taking risk of loss, okay, and you putting you know, your future uh, in jeopardy because you want a couple percentage points, 200 basis points or more, right, with a higher return. Because sometimes the, the math doesn't always make, uh, make sense or make it worth it. But unless you actually have your asset allocation in that framework, and are able to you know, rely on your wealth strategist to show you, okay, if you do this, like, okay, we're taking here and this is what's gonna happen, okay? When you start to see the math behind it and how much it impacts or how little it impacts, that's gonna help you make a better decision too. Because most of the time, I would say from an investment standpoint, uh, the majority of investment drive comes from the emotional side of human beings, okay? And does not necessarily have an equal balance in the practical mathematical side of it. 
Yeah, I agree. And I also, I would push back a little bit on uh, the premise that higher uh, risk means higher returns. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it can, it like enables higher return. It doesn't, uh, it certainly doesn't guarantee higher returns. And I don't think it's actually necessary. Um, you know, if you look at, you know, I, I tell people when I'm talking hierarchy of return, uh, maybe on a first meeting or a second meeting, I ask them, do you know anybody who's never, I mean, now that you understand this kind of premise of the hierarchy, have you, have you ever seen an Egyptian pyramid that's like half built? And it was half built 2,000 years ago, and it's still half built, and it's not going to fall down. It's very stable. And, you know, can you think of anybody who never left tier two? And when they think about it long enough, they go, oh, yeah, Elon Musk has never left tier two, and Warren Buffett's never left tier two, and, you know, several other people who built companies and focused only on that company, mm -hmm. right? So there's no requirement to go beyond that. And I think you would also agree those people had pretty good returns on their investment. Mm -hmm. um, yet for most of us to get into the game of, you know, if I want to be in biotech, it's really likely I'm going to be in tier four in biotech because I don't know anything about it personally. I mean, I could change my life and learn about it and maybe be successful, but I can get those higher returns because I brought somebody on my team um, that can do it at scale and is interested in talking to me. Well, he's not really going to talk to me, but he's interested in me investing because I point and clicked not because, you know, he was raising funds and he just thought I was a cool person to invest, right? So you, it opens opportunity, I think, that can provide that higher return. But if you do have expertise or you want to get expertise there and there's a high likelihood that you could be good at it, uh, I would, I'd recommend holding it in the lowest tier you possibly can. And looking at, I would say, as we kind of finalize the, this, uh, this episode, right, if, if you look at those that are in tier three and, uh, and tier four, um, that have kind of balanced things the, the right way. Uh, my experience has been when there is loss, right? The loss is contextualized as a really valuable lesson. And it doesn't mean that they're not going to make the same type of investment again, but it leads to, okay, what can I learn from that experience, right? That I can apply to the next tier three or next tier four investment. Uh, whereas how, mo how I've seen most people uh, make investment, okay, they don't have, again, like the cash flow protection and using the hierarchy of wealth to determine their asset allocation based on risk and control because they don't have that, right? They're just- They don't have the framework. They don't right. have the framework. And ultimately what happens is when there is a loss, okay, it isn't like, what lesson can I learn? It's, it's, it's more survival, right? Yeah. And they won't get back in the game because of that one, uh, that one experience. And I've seen that countless times where lots of value in making a decision to invest here Okay, but because they invested so much, they put their entire life at risk and therefore were so scarred, they're not going to get back into the game for the fear of hap that happening again. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, I, and I think, you know, as you play out your uh, investing world and your investing life and, and gain experience, don't underestimate the, uh, the impact of the human element of things. Uh, and, and there are so many people involved in uh, tier four assets between you and your money that you'll never meet. Um, that the likely the the opportunity for failure can be really really high, and like you said, Patrick, often you don't learn the lesson from that. You know, it'll just be like, well, you know, you're in it for the long haul, and money goes up and money goes down, and apparently losing half of it today, like I did in 2009, is just you know part of the game. You know, and and I was like, I just don't like living in that world of that low of, of um, control. Yep. And and so taking ownership and actually taking the time to learn about things like real estate, even if in the end you just shift it all to that tier four uh, real estate investment trust, at least you will understand more about it and you can predict when to get in and out of it, where typically we go in with our money and just kind of pick from a smorgasbord menu of this industry or I heard that this, you know, I heard that 
that um, foreign equities are better at the moment, or I hear that, heard that real estate or commercial is best, and you, and you find some stock to click on, um, you're setting yourself up for failure because you haven't done the due diligence, you haven't learned and experienced beforehand. Well, this was a fun series. <laughs> right? I really enjoyed it. I mean, Gary, Gary and I have great conversations, you know, outside of recording any media on these topics, and I've learned so much over the years personally, but also through clients uh, and looking at you as our valuable clients, you know, you're going to be presented with uh, opportunities uh, throughout the course of your life. And the idea is your education, your experience is going to make you a better investor and it's going to allow you to get better gains, but also minimize the risk you're taking at the same time. And I would like to, and I appreciate, and uh, thank you so much for allowing me to you know, participate in this, but also getting this amazing content out to all of my clients that are, and all of our Paradigm Life clients, um, certainly mine who are really, really focused on real estate investing. I just want to kind of close with my big picture takeaway about why real estate. Uh, and it's, it goes back to what I said at the beginning of this uh, episode, which is that it's a multidimensional asset. And it's not just about the cash flow. It's not just about the, the equity building or the appreciation or being able to use leverage. It's all of those combined. And there have been several years where my wife said, you know what, this year I'm going to prove that this pain in the ass uh, asset that we have, <laughs> one, two, three Main Street, is I'm going to prove to you that this thing is losing us money. We should get rid of it. And then when we take all the elements together, she's like, I can't believe it, but this one also was a net gain, even though the cash flow was negative. Hmm, interesting. Right? Well, in the end, obviously, life is uh, full of incredible opportunities, right? Go out and uh, really experience life at a, at a higher level, right? The purpose of investing, the purpose of getting your personal finances in check, right, is just to put you in a position to have a better experience uh, in life day in and day out. Uh, and so I hope you guys have found value in uh, the education. Make sure you, if you haven't watched uh, the first uh, series of kind of this new season uh, on cash flow protection and wealth uh, to do that. And, uh, and we look forward to a couple other segments that's going to dive more into really the education we feel is relevant at this time for our clients to make the best decisions possible in order to live the most financially independent life as possible. So take care. Gary, thank you again for participating. You're amazing. Really appreciate you. And uh, yeah, we'll see you guys uh, on the next episodes. Thanks, Pat.